I uh, appreciate that prayer by Brother Bill and uh, his emphasis there on the church, on the body. Um, I do and am exceptionally grateful for the opportunity to be with the Lord's church. And I don't believe that I felt that gratitude uh, more intensely than when I was in Afghanistan or in Iraq. Uh, just a moment, I may have left something on the pew over here. No, I did not. That's all right. I can't find it, but that's all right. Guess what? We're going to go a long time tonight because I don't have notes. That may be good. I, uh, I had the opportunity to spend some time in Iraq and Afghanistan. Many of you know who know me and have had the opportunity to visit with me just a little bit know that I was a corpsman of Marines. I spent most of my time uh, tending to the wounds of individuals who had been hurt in combat. And as I was deployed for the first time in Iraq, one of the things that I realized was the importance of the Lord's Church. Uh, and as Brother Bill mentioned in his prayer this evening and his love for the congregation, I am grateful for the opportunity that we have to be together. You know, we might hear the saying, you don't know what you have until it's gone. There's a song from the 80s that has that title to it. Um, and that is true. When the opportunity to assemble with the brethren, with the body of Christ, is taken away or even rested from you, you don't realize how important that was for your maturation, for your growth, and for your continued steadfastness in the gospel and in Christ. Uh, when I was in Iraq, I remember flying over there that first day as we got on the plane and headed out from North Carolina. We flew to Bangor, Maine. After making a quick stop in uh, New York City, flew to Maine. And then from Maine, we went on to uh, Ramstein Air Force Base in Germany. From Germany, we flew to Kuwait. Total time was about 18 hours of travel. We landed in Kuwait, and when we got to Kuwait, uh, one of the things that we did was pulled all of our gear and things off of the airplane. And then we went and waited till we had a flight to fly into Al-Takadam, TQ Air, uh, Air Force Base there in Iraq, and then we were going to convoy from that Air Force Base over to our area of operations, which for me happened to be Fallujah in 2005. If you remember the fighting that occurred in Fallujah, you might be familiar with the fact that it was a very intense area of operation. Uh, when we got to the plane in Kuwait, we boarded, we threw all of our sea bags and our gear into the back, we strapped on our flak jackets and our Kevlar because apparently that's going to save you if you crash. Um, we sat in the netting. We sat on the bench and then strapped ourselves into the netting that was in that C-130. It was about an hour and a half flight from Kuwait into TQ, Al-Takadam. And as we were approaching uh, TQ, we began to take enemy rocket fire. And so if you've ever ridden on a cargo aircraft and had to do maneuvers... To escape RPGs, you might know what it's like. It's worse than any roller coaster you've been on. And we did several kinds of bobs and weaves and backs and drops and ended up on the deck safely. And I thought that was the worst landing that I have ever been in. The whole time, as you're going through this process, there's one thing that keeps gnawing in the back of your mind. One thing that I kept thinking about, and it was, am I going to die in the desert? Am I going to lose my life in this pursuit? I've given my all. I've signed my name on the line. I've decided that I am going to serve my country. And now I'm headed to a war zone. 
You know, when you're signing that line as an 18 or 19 year old kid, you don't realize how real war is. It's something that we're not used to. We don't see it in our society. We're not used to fighting like there is in the Middle East. And so the idea of life and death, those things that are final, that are certain, are not so clear sometimes in our minds. And that kept gnawing at me the entire time we were traveling to that country. We got there, we unloaded all of our stuff, I ended up being put out with a group, a small group of individuals that were living in the city at the time. Uh, I was selected to go out and to be a part of a military training team. This military training team was one that went out and they would take the Iraqi army and they would teach them how to fight and engage the enemy and basically recover their country from uh, the opponents. That would be the Taliban, the insurgency there. And when I got to that particular group, I was living out in the middle of the city. There's really no walls that kept us safe. One of the things that I did every night before I went to bed was I checked my weapon, that is my M4, made sure that it was condition one. If any of you have been in the military, you know what that is. Round in the chamber, magazine inserted, weapon on safe. Laid it right next to me in my rack. And I took my pistol. You know what foremen do. We get to carry two types of weapons, a pistol and an M4. I took my pistol and I flipped the 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 cover or the stopper off the, the sheath, the holster, made sure that it was condition one as well, right above my head, and then I unsheathed my K-bar and left it right there above my head on, my, on the mattress above. I went to sleep every night with the expectation that if I were woken up, I would be ready to meet any threat if necessary. Every morning when I rose and my feet hit the floor, I thanked God that I was alive because I had made it through another day. And the idea of life and death was ever present on my mind. That will do something to you. The question is, is did it do enough? I mean, we come back and we get into our complacent lives. Things continue on as they always have since we've gotten back. We might hear some of the words in 2 Peter, that same vein. Brothers and sisters, we are not guaranteed anything other than the breath that we have in our lungs right now. Why is it that it took a war to cause me to see the reality and the certitude of death? Benjamin Franklin said it best. There are only two things in life that are certain, death and taxes. Taxes are a real reality. We cringe every year that April 15th rolls around. But do we give as much thought and as much heed to the idea of death. There is a statement made in Numbers 23 that I think we would do well to heed tonight. To give you a little bit of background of this particular setting, we know that Balaam has been asked by Balak, king of Moab, to come and to denounce the children of Israel as they are making their way towards Canaan. They've been called out of Egypt, and now they are headed to go in and to possess the land that God had given them. And as they are making their way through, Moab, or uh, Balak, king of Moab, sees Israel as a real threat. And he doesn't want them passing through the land. And so he knows that there's a guy in the hills named Balaam who seems to have some sort of favor from God. We're going to call him down and have him come curse God's people for us. So what does he do? He sends an envoy to meet Balaam with gifts and tells him, we want to have you come down and to curse the people of God. 
we know he's, he denies them once, he denies them twice after he sends an even greater envoy. Finally, he relents and goes down. We know the story. In fact, Revelation 2 and verse 14 tells us that Balak ultimately taught, or Balaam taught Balak, king of Moab, how to cause the people of God to stumble. So we see his covetousness there for worldly gain, for worldly greed. But one statement stands out in Numbers 23 and verse 10. He says, Who can count the dust of Jacob and the number of the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous and let my last end be like his. I want us tonight to talk about living to die. That is, understanding that death is an ever-present reality and then dying to live. How do we move ourselves into a relationship with God that's consistent, that promises an eternal life? Because we really are faced with that dilemma. Every one of us who are breathing tonight will eventually face death unless the Lord returns before then. And how are we living, and are we living in such a way that we can honestly say, let me die the death of the righteous. And here's the irony here with Balaam, or with Balak, or Balaam, I'm sorry. Balaam was not righteous. See, Balaam notices that there is a difference in the way the righteous die than in the way the wicked do. And he says, I want that death, knowing full well that currently his life is not consistently seeking God's truth. You see, the life of the righteous must be lived in order to expect the death thereof. I want us to contrast really tonight the death and the lies of the wicked, and then maybe consider Balaam's plea in light of all of this discussion. You see, in our society today, there are two main viewpoints. That is, number one, live for self. We see it all around us in secular society. You do what makes you feel good. Ultimately, you are the most important person in your life. It doesn't matter who it hurts for you to get what you need or want. We are the ones who are the most important. Therefore, we see it in the Nike slogan, like, just do it. We may be familiar with that uh, intent there. Do what makes you feel good. And see, they believe that restraint in any form, even in moral capacities, is not really living life to the fullest. Unfortunately, there are many people who subscribe to this view. They believe that actions do not affect us. They may have that Gnostic idea, well, you know, it doesn't really matter what I do in life. You know, God's going to whitewash everything. Might go back to the psalmist in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. That man is blessed whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and in whose law he does meditate day and night. The text there tells us, he shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water, which bringeth forth its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatsoever he does prospers, but then look at the wicked, not so the wicked... They are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly or the wicked shall perish. The psalmist there sets up for us this dichotomy that a life that is pursued in faithfulness and fidelity to God is going to be rewarded. A life that is lived in wickedness, almost shaking their fist at God, is going to be punished. There are individuals today who all they do is live for themselves and for the flesh. 
They have this worldview that is pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You can do whatever you want. And they also have this false righteousness. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago in our discussion of Christian moralistic therapeutic deism. That is about the bulk of what their Christianity amounts to. And it is not convicting to move them to a right life or right method or mode of living. Galatians 5.19, Paul would remark on this. He says, now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, reveling, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, even as I told you in times past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Does that sound like the world around us today? It's interesting that Paul's words, written some 2,000 years ago, could be taken from the text, lifted, transplanted, and set down on our society, and be just as applicable today. Why? Because the sin of mankind has not changed. And the desire for the flesh and the fulfillment of the here and now has superseded any view towards eternity and a life living consistently toward God, the here and now. One of our brethren had this remark concerning this. He said, liberty without restraint is license. And unrestrained license is abject bondage. Those individuals who teach and preach freedom from any kind of restraint morally are really putting us into the bonds of sin. And ultimately, we look at Romans chapter 5, being bound to sin, we are bound to death. Romans 3 and verse 23, the wages of sin is death. Or 6.23, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So the idea that we can have and live for self is the wrong attitude that we should have. But then there is the attitude of those who want to live for God. When I was deployed in Iraq, that was something that I did not see. I was around a bunch of people who really were there just because it was a job. Some of them thought about life and death issues, but I didn't really have an opportunity in Iraq to talk much about God and the church and salvation because that really wasn't at the fore of a lot of their minds. I lost several friends when I was in Iraq who I knew had not responded to the gospel. I saw a lot of death, a lot of dying, which caused me to think a lot about eternal matters. When you're a corpsman, especially in a situation like that, and all you do is treat the dead and the dying, it really does something to you in bringing to light these eternal principles that God has set down for us. It cannot but help force you to think about eternity. There was an individual I knew of who was an atheist. And uh, one of the things that uh, he did was he would always make fun of the Christians that worked at this particular sawmill. And uh, anyway, one of the truck drivers went down there one day to pick up a load and uh, he was cutting logs. And uh, I don't know if you know what a donkey is, you might know, but to ride that donkey you have to be pretty good. But you get up on the log and you ride the log down and it makes a cut to square that log. You jump off the other side, you flip it over, you get on the log and ride it back down for another pass. And that's how you square up your lumber. Well, he got up on that log and he wrote it down and it made a pass. And then on its way back, something fell across. It stopped that log and he fell off into the saw. 
But his last words to the men around him were, Oh, God, help me. That sticks with me. And the reason that sticks with me is because even in the heart of an atheist, their last cry is an appeal to God. There is something innate within us that understands and knows that God exists. Yet many don't want to be obliged to the standard that God enjoins on mankind. And they try, as Romans says, to ignore Him. What does the text tell us there? Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them up to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all uncleanness or unrighteousness. What is it like to live for God? Are there those people who are striving to do that which is right? The answer is yes. We shouldn't be so pessimistic in thinking that we are the only ones. We're the last bastion of hope. Because there are people who are trying to do the will of God. But what does it look like? Well, Paul says in Philippians 1 and verse 21, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What does that life look like? It looks like the fact that it does not fear death. Paul would say, death, where is thy victory? O grave, where is thy sting? It's swallowed up in Christ, and therefore it has no threat to us anymore. Death is not final for God's people. It is not the end. Philippians 2 and verse 15, Paul would continue in that same book, saying that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, and note the description of the righteous, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 5 that you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. How are we living? Is the life of the righteous something we Pursue. I know it can get tough at times. In Psalm 73, we might have those same sentiments as Asaph when he's writing that psalm and he's looking at the wicked and saying, how do they prosper? They're not in trouble as other men. They don't struggle like other men. Neither are they plagued like other men. They have strength in their death. Everything about them seems to prosper. But here's the catch. The psalmist there says, until I considered their end. You see, when we have the view that this life is not the final purpose, and that we are waiting or have the expectation of another, then it helps us in this life live the way God wants, doesn't it? When we know that there is a certain hereafter, we also might consider the prayers of David. The psalms give us insight into the desire of the righteous, Psalm 27 in verse 4, David would say, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in His temple. Are we seeking continually to see God? And when we live in light of death as a certainty, how will that shape the decisions that we make every day? Knowing full well that tomorrow very well could be our last, or today could even be our last. You see, when I was in Iraq, every day held threats. There was one day that I recall in particular, 
probably, uh, I don't know how much God intervened on that day. But looking back, I believe it was considerable. We got up to do a log run. If you've ever been in the military, you know what a log run is, a logistics run. We were moving from fob to fob, taking uh, supplies to certain groups. I happened to get snagged to go on this particular log run. It was all day. It was around the city and out on the outskirts. So we were on the road all day. If you know anything about driving over in Iraq, there are always something called IEDs, improvised explosive devices. And you had to be aware of those. And those could hit your convoy and kill half your convoy. So getting out on the road was not something that I particularly cared for, for obvious reasons. Uh, but we were out all day. So we left our fob and went to one. We went to Echo, the train station down there. We saw them. We left. Five minutes after we left, another incoming convoy got hit by an IED in the same route that we had gone. Blew up two of their vids. We go to Fox Company, go to see them in the middle of the city. And we went... And they used our convoy to test the reaction time on the ID that they detonated 15 minutes after we left. We went to Golf Company. We stopped before we got to an IED because there was another convoy in front of us that had been hit. Three times our convoy missed an IED. Shortly thereafter, say about a month, month and a half, we had... Uh, I did radio watch with one of our corporals who was an RTO, radio telegraph operator. And I was sitting in there with him one night. It was about 11 or 12 o'clock. We were just talking and you know, visiting because we really didn't want to go to sleep. And uh, we heard this really loud explosion. Well, where we were, artillery liked to walk in ordnance uh, to a particular distance from our, our position in order to blow up IED factories where people would go and they would build bombs against uh, the U.S., and so one, we heard really loud one night, and it was loud. We looked at each other and thought, man, they're getting really close tonight. And so about five minutes later, we heard across the radio, Bulldog, Bulldog, this is Spartan, Maine. Of course, our call sign was Bulldog at the time, and Spartan was the uh, RCT-8. He said, Bulldog, Bulldog, this is Spartan, Maine. He said, yeah, send your traffic. And they said, we need you to verify a grid coordinates. We said, okay. So they read us the grid coordinates, and we said, yeah, that's our position. And they said, well, can you verify a mortar attack? <laughs> so we went outside, and sure enough, we had been mortared and uh, hit with RPGs. It can happen that fast. Over there, I was aware of it. Over there, it was something that was an ever-present reality. But why is it that when we get back in our lives and get complacent, that we lose that urgency to live godly every day? Where does it go? How does it disappear? I think one of the greatest things that Satan does is can cause us to be deceived into the, to thinking that tomorrow is good enough. I'll have tomorrow to get things right. I'll have the next day. You might think of James and what he says. Go to now, you who say tomorrow we will do such and such a thing. We will enter into a city, buy and sell, and get gain. For you know not what may be on the morrow. Therefore say, if the Lord wills. To have the idea that this day is all we have. Living in the moment, realizing that the decisions that we make now affect an eternity. is something that we need to keep in mind. And then in life in general between these two. The righteous and the wicked. 
There is submission and humility in those who seek to serve God. Luke 14, 11, the Bible there says, For whoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and whosoever humbleth himself shall be exalted. But what about the deaths of these two? We've looked at the lives. See, when death is certain, many are uncertain. I uh, had the opportunity, well, I wouldn't say opportunity. Been around several people who died, a few of which in my arms. It's hard when you can't save them. It's hard when that's your job and they're just beyond repair. There's some lessons there I'll get to in a minute. But what about the deaths of the wicked versus the deaths of the righteous? We know that death is a reality all men must face. Romans 5 and verse 12. Paul says, Wherefore is by one man centered into the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Where does death come from? The adversary. Our sin. We know that it separates us from God. Hence the reason God sent His Son. As Wes talked about this morning in John 3, verse 16 and 17, there is grace there of God and that loving kindness that's been outstretched to us to overcome an eternal separation. You see, it ought not be the case that God's people meet death in fear. We ought to meet it as a welcome friend, knowing that we are going home to see God and the fulfillment of all of this life is manifest in our salvation and eternity with Him. What about the deaths of the wicked? My grandmother was not a Christian. It's one of my, my great-grandmother, I'll say. One of the worst passings I think I've ever seen. She held on to every breath because she was afraid of what was there. I've never seen that kind of a death. Fear. Absolute fear. And that cannot be us. You see, when we enter into that phase of our life, we ought to be certain, as Paul says, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. That's our very lives. See, Ezekiel 33, 11. The Bible there says, Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? It is God's desire that all men come to a knowledge of him. God does not take pleasure in the death of those who are outside of the blood of Christ. God does take pleasure in the death of those who are in his blood. Those who have accepted Christ can meet death, as we mentioned before, as an old friend. And we can go peacefully into our eternity with God. Malachi 3 and verse 16. He would say there, Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and a book of remembrance was written before him. For them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. We think about the book of remembrance being written for us. Those who are faithful to God, those words should comfort us. But especially Romans 5 and verse 10. For if when we were enemies to the cross, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. In verse 16 of chapter 6, Know you not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. You see, we have a choice. We can make a choice in this life about who we are serving. 
And any time we abrogate our will to God and allow it to be to Satan, then we've decided who we are serving. We've decided. We've made that decision. What does that look like in a life? Does that slip? We might think of the Hebrews writer and he says, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. But if the word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? I understand it's easy to move into life knowing where I've come from, the experiences that I've had. It's easy to let time get away from me and to expect that the sun will rise for me the very next day. What happened to my desire to live each day like it was my last? I remember the feeling that I had after I had escaped several positions in a day that I shouldn't have lived through. Went to bed in tears. And woke up in them. Why am I alive? What purpose does God have for me? Because by all accounts, shouldn't be here. The plea is real. See, even at their last, the wicked want the blessings that are found in Christ. Let me die the death of the righteous and let my last end be like his. Why is it so coveted, though? Because the death of the righteous is a hard thing. We look at 11 of the 12, they were martyred for their faith. We look at the early church and the persecution they endured. Revelation 2 and verse 10, we use all the time. Live faithfully unto death and you shall receive a crown of life. But he's not talking about the durative aspect there. That is the idea that we live a full and fulfilling life and we'll go to heaven. Which is true in principle, by the way. It is true. But his exhortation to them there is you live faithfully to God even if it costs you your life. Even if you're going to die for it. And you shall receive a crown of life. Why is it that we've forgotten that death is a reality? And why do our lives sometimes reflect that forgetfulness? I'm preaching to myself just as much as I am any one of you tonight. How is it that we forget those most certain things, those certain principles? You see, if one does not find themselves in Christ in life, they will not find themselves in Christ in death. How important is it for us to avail ourselves of the blood of Christ in this life while there is time? I've heard it said, while there's life, there's hope. As long as we are living each day, realizing who God is, what master we serve, that is the God of heaven, then we can die the death of the righteous. But it can't be given without living the life that comes with it.
Do you realize tonight that you have not turned your life over to God? You've been waiting for another time. Maybe as Felix said or Agrippa said, at a more convenient time, I'll call on you. Don't delay tonight. You need to make your life right with God because tomorrow is not certain. Death is a real and present thing. We need not forget that. And if you've been waiting for a time to make your life right with God because you realize you've drifted off into things that you shouldn't have, maybe you've been like Balaam and wrestled with the covetousness that comes there. You've not mortified those members which are upon the earth, Colossians 3 and verse 5. And we encourage you to slay them, put them to death, and turn your will over to God so that He can live in you. Paul would say in verse 1 of Colossians 3, If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of the throne of God. Set your affections on things above and not on things of the earth, for you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. We might consider Paul's words in Galatians 2, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, I know what it's like to live to die. I know what it's like to live seeing death as a reality and knowing that I may not make it through a certain period of time. I know that feeling. But I also know what it's like to die to oneself so that we can live in eternity with God one day. One of the things that my, my granddad and my mom always told me whenever I had the opportunity to get in touch with them back at home was live so that we can all see you again. We need to be living so that we can see each other again because ultimately that's what we want. We're here to help one another get to heaven through the blood of Christ and God's gracious loving kindness that he extended to us. If you realize tonight that you stand outside of that blood of Christ, you have not responded to the gospel call to be immersed for the remission of your sins, don't delay tonight. Put on Christ in immersion. Have your sins remissed so that you can go to heaven one day. And if you need to make your life right, purge your life of anything that hinders you in your walk, then we encourage you to do that as well. If you have any need tonight, won't you come as we stand and sing our song of encouragement.